All right, we've been looking for the last couple of weeks at the book of Titus, and to sum up Titus, you're looking at a uh, understanding of what God wants us to do as far as his grace goes, and as far as our responsibility to maintain good works. For those of you that may be joining us, we've taken just a couple of, uh, well, we've uh, taken just about every time and looked at what God's grace teaches us and how it is that we are, ought to behave and good works. You remember that in chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus, or bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of truth, which accords with godliness. There's something that godliness, there's something that the faith teaches us about right living. And that's the message of Titus, God's grace plus our good works. If you want to look at this theme, note that um, as you jump down to chapter 1, verse 16, You've got these false teachers. You've got these people that are Cretans that are uh, speaking evil things. And as he concludes this chapter in verse 16, he says, They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Could that possibly describe us as Christians, that we are disqualified for every good works? The answer is yes, absolutely. If it is that we are uh, continually walking um, uh, walking and being insubordinate, being people that are, um, well, we say whatever we think. We'll talk more about that here in just a little while. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. As Paul commands Titus himself, young men, he says, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Could that apply to me? Should it apply to me that I am a pattern of good works? You can nod your head. That's okay. All right. We should be patterns of good works. Look down at verse 14. As he talks about the grace of God and uh, how it's the Savior gave himself for us, verse 14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. Should that describe me? Being on fire for good works, being ready to do those things. As he goes on, chapter 3 and verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey and be ready for every good work. Should that describe you and me, that we're ready for every good work? And the answer is yes. Look at verse 8 of the same chapter, verse 3, or chapter 3 rather. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Continue doing them. Make it, a, uh, make it a habit. And down in verse 14, also let our people learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. God's grace manifested, seen in our life, leads us to a doctrine that takes the knowledge that we've received and puts it into action with regard to our good works. What's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is that we become like those chapter 1 people, the Cretans, as he mentioned, chapter 1 and verse 12. One of them a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables, not commanding men for, who turn from the truth. We don't want to be people that, verse 16, profess to know God, but in works they deny him. So as Paul talks to Titus and says, you need to set in order the things that are lacking, chapter 1 and verse 5. One of those things is, chapter 1, appoint elders. 
one of the purposes, primary purposes that he gives for those elders is so that they can stop the mouths of people like we just read about there in the end of chapter 1. That they can know and help those people to uh, change, to rebuke them sharply, he would say. One of the responsibilities of Titus in Titus chapter 2 is to set in order the ways that men and women are to behave as Christians. What does that look like? Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's the older men, the commandment to the older men. Chapter uh, 2, verses 3, here's the commandment to the older women. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the commandment to the younger women. Chapter 2, verse 6 and uh, six through 8, here's the commandment to young men like Titus. And each one of these responsibilities characterizes things that Titus as a minister, as a preacher of the gospel, ought to be emphasizing in the life so that it is that these people know how it is that they ought to behave. What's the reason for that? Here's the elders shepherding, chapter 1. Here's the responsibility for older, older men, young, uh, older women, younger men, younger women. Because the grace of God, verse 11, that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us, who's the us? Everybody that's mentioned so far teaching all of us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, here's the things we've turned away from, here's the things we've left behind in the past, we should live present, soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. I just have to look back up to chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 8, to see what that looks like. To live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, there's the present, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's our future. Here's our hope. We're putting everything squarely in the grace of God that brings salvation. That's our responsibility as Christians. That's the way that we behave. And so as he talks about these things, now you get to chapter 3, which are, well, they're kind of general commandments, and yet at the same time you still find that he's going to deal more with the relationships of us with the people that we deal with on a regular basis, i.e. Christians at Crete, here are some people that you're going to encounter, and this is the way that you behave with them. Let's read chapter 3, and then we'll come back and make some observations. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God, our, from God our Savior towards men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that we, that, excuse me, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid disputes, genealogies, contentions, and striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a man is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be mindful, uh, be diligent to come to me at Nic uh, Nicopolis, for there I have uh, decided to spend the winter. 
Send Zenius the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. All those who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. How do I as a Christian, if I know I need to maintain good works, if I know I need to be an example, chapter 2 and verse 8, and as an older man, as an older woman, as a younger man, as a younger woman, here's my character, and here's the things that he wants me to emphasize. But practically, what does that look like with the people outside? What does it look like with the people inside? Take a look at verses 1 through 3. How do I behave towards the Cretans who are outside the church? Meaning just the people that are uh, not members of the church. Number one, he's going to say, be a model citizen. Be a model citizen. God is not in the making of rebels, as far as we're talking about with regard to governments. God is not in the job of making people that are constantly trying to buck the system and constantly trying to be uh, rebel rousers. The Jews became that for the Roman Empire, didn't they? Because it was that they were so staunchly held on to their beliefs um, that the emperor, uh, uh, one of the emperors, brought in standard with uh, with a uh, with an emblem on it into Jerusalem, and the Jews they hated that so much because uh, they saw that representation, that standard, as a as an offense to them, and they uh, they bucked the system hard. And it turns out that's the reason, really, why it was that uh, the emperor Titus came in, or Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. because. Well, they couldn't do anything else with the Jews. They were constantly uh, waging this guerrilla warfare and constantly trying to buck the Roman system because they felt like that was their right and that was what God wanted them to do. Is that what God wants Christians to do? Is that what God wants Christians to do? If I'm reading Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, again, remember that it's under the Roman system. Be a model citizen. Be subject. That means I need to submit to my rulers. That means I need to submit to my authorities. Literally, I need to willingly place myself under them. Even a government as oppressive as the Romans, even as a government as, as mean and harsh as the Roman Empire, is that, is that, that's exactly right. Be subject to them. Adam Clark's commentary, I like reading Adam Clark from time to time, and, and his, his take on this is, such that uh, it hurt me whenever I was looking at this. Adam Clark said, This doctrine of obedience to the civil powers was necessary, highly necessary for the Cretans. He said they were reputed, uh, reputed a people exceedingly jealous of their civil privileges and ready to run into a state of insurrection whenever they suspected any attempt on their part of their rulers to infringe on their liberties. Ouch. Isn't it strange sometimes that we as Americans are kind of like these Cretans that were exceedingly jealous of our civil liberties. Oh, God gave those things to us, Romans chapter 13. And as we look at our government and our system of, well, uh, uh, the republic that we're a part of, we recognize what a fragile thing it is and how it is that our founders um, took those, those things that, we ought to be, uh, uh, that ought to be granted to every person and then we take a look at that and we really get upset whenever it is that we feel like those civil liberties begin to be infringed upon. You know, if we're really honest with ourselves, we find we're a whole lot more like these Cretans, exceedingly jealous of their civil privileges. 
But here's the responsibility. Be subject to rulers and authorities to obey. The word obey has built into it a respect for somebody higher than myself. And that's not just when I agree with them. When it is that we give commands to our children, when we tell them, this is what you do, I want you to go clean your room, it's not just when that child wants to go clean their room. In many cases, it's when the child even doesn't want to go clean their room. We are to obey, to be ready for every good work, still in context of being sub, uh, subject to rulers. When it is that we are commanded as American citizens to do certain things that we may agree with or certain things that we may not agree with, what's our responsibility? Be subject to those rulers, to obey those rulers. God is not in the process of making people that are going to buck the system as far as government goes. If we're living out New Testament Christianity, we're already going to put ourselves at odds with the values and cores of the world, aren't we? We're already going to be rebels just by simply the fact that we're not living by the same code of conduct, the same standard as other people. But it is that because maybe other people at the same time are trying to buck the system and other people that are trying to, you know, march in the streets or, you know, um, what was it they had a couple of years ago, the sit-in for the Wall Street or uh, what was that? I don't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, when everybody else is out rioting in the streets because they feel like something is done that's unjust, that's, that's hateful, that's, that's violation of their civil liberties... It's not a time for civil disobedience. It's not a time for us to buck the system, so to speak, to the point of casting off and saying, well, I'm not going to accept that government anymore. God's the one that put that government in place. And as we look at our lives and our, our responsibilities to live as Christians, we put ourselves under those things. We make ourselves subject to the authorities that are there. Behave as a model citizen. How do I behave towards those Cretans outside the church? Number two, watch your tongue, watch your attitude. Ouch. <laughs> watch your tongue, watch your attitude. Verse two, speak evil of no one. In context, who are we talking about? We're still kind of in the same vein as talking about the government officials. To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to, in case you had any doubt, everyone, to all men. Speak evil of no one. This is the Greek word blasphemo. What does that sound like? Blasphemy, blaspheming. It's to speak against, to revile, to um, deride in a negative way, to really reproach somebody. You're not a person that speaks against everyone and everything just because you can. Watch your tongue, watch your attitude especially, going back to verse 1, who? The government leaders? Ouch. Ouch. What is it that we're supposed to do? I can go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and I can look and I can see that I have a responsibility towards my, uh, towards my um, rulers, towards the people that are over me, and it doesn't include blasphemy. It doesn't include speaking against them and reviling them and saying all those empty heads up in Washington, right? What's my responsibility? To pray for the kings and for 
all who are in authority. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1 would be a good cross-reference to put there. With every reproachful thing that we say against the government and against people that we disagree with, whether we're talking about political parties, whether we're talking about uh, Congress, whether we're talking about the president, whether we're talking about even our local officials here, here's the question. Have you prayed for those people? Have you lifted them up before the throne of God and said, God, these people need your wisdom. God, these people need grace. These people need to understand that you are sovereign. God, we want to pray for these people so that we can, as Christians, live quiet and peaceable lives. What's the opposite of that? Well, noisy and warlike. Does my life sound more noisy and warlike than it does quiet and peaceable? Well, the responsibility is, is that we speak evil of no one, we blaspheme no one's, revile or speak against, but rather be peaceable. This is actually a negative word in the, uh, in the Greek, the way that it's phrased. Um, I don't know if this word is still used on the playground a little bit, but uh, it used to be that the toughest, the biggest guy on the playground at school, we would say, have a word for him, and we would say, he's a macho man, Yeah. You know, the macho man, the one that's, he's, he's not to be trifled with. He's the one that's going to be, well, like Joseph, where his, his arm is bigger than a tree trunk, you know? And you, you look at a person like that, it's macho. Now, that's the Greek word with one exception. It's got the A in front of it. A, machos. A does what to the Greek? It makes it a negative. It says not macho. Here is somebody who is peaceable, and that is they are not macho. That is, here's a person that sees himself as invincible. You don't want to cross paths with me. You don't want to get on my bad side. You don't want me to come down and bring my wrath upon you. That's macho. He says, you're not macho, not weaklings, but that you're subject to the authorities and the rulers, and you're somebody who is not known as, well, a person that has a chip on their shoulder. We use that term a lot. You know people like that, that they just kind of walk around and are just waiting for you to say the wrong thing, and just as soon as you say the wrong thing, I'm going to get you. He says, you're not that. Are we painting a picture here of these people? Here's a person who's subject to rulers and authorities. Here's a person who is not speaking evil against them. Here's a person that's not just waiting for somebody to do or say or think the wrong thing towards them. Instead, they are a person who is gentle, showing meekness, humility to all men. Do these characteristics sound like the average Christian in the year 2020? These Christian characteristics, does this sound like the average American in 2020? Let's start there. Not really. Especially with the advent of things like social media. People feel like that they can post whatever it is they want to post. They feel like they can say whatever it is they want to say against the government, against rulers, against people that they disagree with. And they're going to post it and say, share if you like it or share if you agree. Well... One of the things that's going to distinguish us as Christians that are operating with a different set of worldly or a different set of standards than this world is maybe not liking those things, maybe not sharing those things, maybe not saying those things. 
even though as American citizens it may be our right, the question is, is it our right as Christians according to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and following? Something to think about. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, and that's uh, a point that I hadn't uh, intended on covering, but that's exactly right. When is it permissible, okay, to rebel against the civil authorities? When it is that you have a Acts 5.29 exception, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's not a license to just go and do anything that you want to do. What it is is an understanding that we answer to a higher authority than the American Empire. We answer to God, and God says, you be a good citizen. But if it is that our country, God forbid, ever outlaws worship of God and the Savior Jesus Christ, then it is that we have a responsibility to obey God rather than men. But in everything else, we are subject. We are, as we mentioned, model citizens. Now think about this just for a minute. Why would God command these people at Crete to do these things, to behave in these ways? Why would he want them to be model citizens, both in attitude and speech, being willingly subject, not speaking against them, being people who are not macho, not just waiting for the government to come along and knock away one of their civil liberties so that they can rebel. What would be the responsibility, or excuse me, what would be the reason practically for that? All right, so Joseph brings up uh, what Peter talks about in 1 Peter in saying that they, when they look at your good conduct and they don't see any reason why it ought to be that they're persecuting you or hurting you or taking away things, then they don't have a leg to stand on because in everything they've been model citizens. When persecution really began to get ramped up in the first century of these Christians, some of the Christian apologists, that is, those people that were making defenses, one of their primary reasons uh, or one of the primary arguments that they would make in their early, Christian, in their early writings was, listen, we pray for the emperor. Listen, we pray for our governors and for our authorities that are over us. We are good citizens. They don't have any leg to stand on. They're not saying we're not willingly trying to buck the government. The only thing that's different is that we're not pantheistic. That is, we're not worshiping many gods like the gods of the Romans do. All the Romans wanted in some respect was for them to take a little pinch of incense and to say, Caesar is Lord. Christians, we can't do that. We can't worship at the altar of what this world says is important and expect that we're going to be pleasing to God. And so the reason why persecution began to ramped up is not because the Christians only worshiped one God. Well, excuse me, it is because the Christians only worshiped one God and they wouldn't worship the gods of the Romans. Well, what people would say is not a big deal. Just take the incense and say Caesar is Lord and 
you can keep your family or you can keep your job or whatever it is. You know, Christians are going to be model citizens, but they're not going to go against, as Alan mentioned, the Acts 5.29 principle, we got to obey God rather than men. Um, why else, practically? So it would keep us from uh, suffering justly. Here, if somebody speaks against you or treats you in a derisive way, you're suffering unjustly. Okay? Why else would God command us to be model citizens? Alan cites Romans chapter 12. Uh, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are different. We're not like we used to be. And strangely enough, or I guess appropriately enough, that's exactly the next point he makes here in Titus chapter 3. Look at verse 3. He says, we're speaking uh, evil of nobody, verse 2, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility uh, to all men. For, because, because why, Paul? Because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We behaved this way because we were once just like those Cretans. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, people that were serving our various lusts, whatever those things were, we were those things. What changed in us? Chapter 2 and verse 11. What changed in us? The grace of God that appeared unto all men appeared to me, and it appeared to you. Changing you as an older man, as an older woman, as a younger man, as a younger woman, and making us something where Christ owns our past. We live for Christ in the present. We look forward to Christ in the future. But we were once like these people in verse 3. We were once these foolish, that is literally not understanding, disobedient, non-compliant, <coughs> non-compliant, deceived, being led astray, serving, that is, we were slaves to all kinds of lusts and pleasures. Greek words for hedonism. Feels good, do it. I want it, I'm going to take it. We were like that. Living in malice, depravity, and envy. Hateful and hating one another. I don't have any kind of consideration for anybody else other than myself. I have placed myself at the center of the universe. Therefore, you get on my nerves. You get in my way. Oh, I'm going to hate you. I'm going to hate everybody, but I'm going to hate you especially more. Hating Hateful and hating one another. No consideration for one, anybody. But, verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior towards men appeared. Let's stop there. Let's jump down to the context and discuss the last part. And then we'll come back and discuss verses 4 through 7. Look at verses 8 through 11. How do I handle Cretans outside the church? Verses 1 to 3. I was once like that. Verses 8 through 11, here is maybe Paul commanding Titus and saying, how do you handle those people with the same mindset as the world who are still maybe inside the church? 
those people that, well, their mouths ought to be stopped there in chapter 1. How do I, I behave towards these people? He says, verse 8, this is faithful saying, these things I want you to affirm constantly. Titus, here's your role as a preacher. Here's your role as a minister of Jesus Christ, as a young man who is preaching and teaching the church how to behave. Affirm these constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Keep it going. Keep it going. Affirm constantly. What's good and profitable for all men, verse 8, is that you keep your head down and you do your work. Why? Because if I pop my head up and I begin to pay attention to every little thing that's going on, to people that are not behaving as they ought to, to people that are, well, idle and insubordinate, all those chapter one lovely reprehensible qualities, we might get wrapped up in these things. Verse nine, but avoid foolish disputes. Turn your back on, literally, these foolish disputes. These matters of controversy. Turn your back on things like following genealogies, disputes about the law. These things, they're unprofitable. They're useless. They're not like the good works that you know you ought to be doing. Here's what we might do. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Alan says, yes, you know, I'm not so sure about that. Let's, let's, let's sit down. Let's talk about that. Let's draw lines of division and lines of fellowship over not, whether or not Adam and Eve had belly buttons. What do you think? Well, what do you think about the genealogy of Matthew chapter? What do you think about your genealogy? You know, you ought to be, if you're going to be a good Christian, to uh, dispute the, the, the genealogy of Jesus and have an understanding of how this person fits with this person. How is it that this, uh, this person fit into the genealogy? Well, we begin to talk about those things. Well, what about, what about myths? What about fables? I heard a story one time about Jesus whenever he was a young boy making a, a dove come to life and, and one of the children in the schoolyard had killed it. And we spend our time looking at the things that really don't have any bearing on us living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, Titus chapter 2 and verse 12. And Paul says to Titus, don't get wrapped up in those things. People spend so much time looking at things that in the large scheme of things, they don't really matter and they're not going to be profitable for good works. So, but we can begin to treat those things like they become the most important thing. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. Avoid, turn your back to foolish disputes. Stay away from unprofitable and useless things, not like good works. <clears throat> Anthony Stogner is here this morning, and he uses a word routinely that uh, I was going to mention if it's all right with him. He talks about trolling. Oh, you've seen that. Uh, don't be a troll. Uh, this person is trolling. It's a, you know, it's a, a relatively new word, but the word trolling is primarily used in terms of the Internet. And it's primarily in terms of, well, you ever read a news article and then you go down and you see the comments below and you see someone that posts something that's highly incendiary and something that's just way off topic and it really doesn't have anything to do with the article. In a lot of cases, people refer to a person like that as a troll. Why? 
because they're not really interested in talking about the major issue or whatever the article is talking about. What they're interested in is baiting people into a fight or baiting somebody into uh, really losing their cool and <laughs> typing something that's really, really a, maybe a long response or incendiary or, or, or just really getting a rise out of somebody else. That's trolling. It seems like in some instance or some uh, way that these people that are interested in these genealogies and uh, foolish contentions and strivings about the law, they're unprofitable and useless. Well, it could be that they're trolling, just looking for somebody to get upset about what it is that they're talking about. What is our responsibility? Verse 10, how do we respond to trolls? Didn't realize that was a good word, Anthony. That's a great word. How do we respond? We, he says, reject a divisive man. Literally, a heretic. A heretic is somebody that makes you decide one way or another what's right and what's wrong. When we're talking about it with Adam and Eve had belly buttons, well, you can't be in fellowship with me if it is that you don't decide right now about whether or not they had belly buttons. That's a heretic. I'm forcing you to make a decision based upon something that I've set up as a doctrinal stance. We take a person like that, and he says, reject a person like that. Somebody that's not committed to scripture or reason. You give them one admonition. Brother, you know I love you. You know I think the world of you, and I know that you love the Lord. I love the Lord too. But what you're talking about really has no value as far as our New Testament Christianity goes. There's one warning. Then he says you give them a second warning. Brother, listen, I told you last time, I'm not going to entertain those things. We're not going to talk about this genealogy anymore. We're not going to talk about this dispute about the law, about how, uh, how it was that Moses uh, intended this or how it was that this was our foundation today is on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is that I don't want you to bring this up again. After that second admonition, he brings it up again. What do you do? He says you literally, he invites you, you excuse yourself from him not accepting the invitation. You do not engage him any longer. Knowing, verse 11, that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Why is that? You know, there are things that we talk about in the church that I may not understand exactly. Is that true? You understand everything? <laughs> I sure don't. And I look at things, and there may be things that I need to be taught more clearly on. And in going to a person like Alan, saying, Alan, can you instruct me and can you help me to understand how this Bible doctrine fits with the rest of the picture of Scripture as a whole? There's an attitude there that says, I'm willing to look at and see, but I just don't understand how this works. There may be an attitude in saying, I don't know that God has said anything about this. Can you show me a principle from the Bible of how, how this applies to me maintaining good works and understanding God's grace better? There may be a matter of misunderstanding or there may be a matter of ignorance. Both of those things are not a reason to deny somebody or to turn your back on them. But here is somebody that repeatedly is rejecting either Scripture or they're rejecting reason. They're rejecting Scripture or they're rejecting reason. 
And when we come to the scriptures, we come with our reasoning engaged so that we can understand the scriptures through reason. And as God has made us reasonable beasts, or reasonable people, rather, not like the Cretan beast, but you understand God has made us reasonable people, we ought to be able to look and say, aha, I see what God wants me to do and how he wants me to behave. Therefore, I will change my life so that I can be careful to, hey, maintain good works, book of Titus. But if it is, then I'm continually going to the, well, what if this? Well, what if that? Well, what if this? Well, what if that? Even though I see clearly what the reason is, that's a cause for somebody to say, wait a minute, brother, you're, you're going to things that really don't matter in the long run. You're going to things that really don't have any application to you walking in God's grace and maintaining good works. You take a person like that that's continually stirring the pot, so to speak, that's continually trolling, looking for somebody to just bait into an argument or bait into a debate or bait into a contentious, uh, contentious discussion. And you take a person like that and you say, I'm going to give you one warning. Listen, I don't want you to talk about this again. What you're talking about is unprofitable to church. You give them a second one. And then after that, you turn your back. You reject that person and you excuse yourself from that discussion, knowing that it's such a person who is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. You start with chapter 3 and verse 1. Be ready for every good work. You jump down to verse 8. Be careful to maintain good works. If that's the sandwich, the bread, here's my responsibility to the civil rulers and authorities. Maintain good works. Be ready for every good work. Verse 8, the Christians in the church. Here's what I want you, Titus, to confirm constantly. You do good works. You teach the people how to continue in those good works. It's the sandwich bread. What's the meat? The meat is where we started verse 8, or verse, uh, verse 4, rather. When the kindness and love of our God and Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being uh, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The difference in my life toward the civil authorities is the kindness and love of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The responsibility that I have to maintain good works in the church, out of the church, behaving as God wants me to behave, has to do with the meat of everything that God has done for me in the redemptive plan of God through Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that he talks about this twice in this epistle. <clears throat> the first one is after giving the responsibilities to the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men there in chapter 2. And as he talks about the more famous passage of Scripture there in verses 11 through 13, 11 through 14 of chapter 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that dying and godliness worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age. But in talking about continuing doing those good works and behaving the way that we ought to, he says, towards the civil authorities, you be ready for every good work. Affirm constantly, Titus, in the church, keep your head down, do your work. You know the things that God wants you to do and be, you do those things. 
but you do it based upon the kindness and love of our God and Savior. It's not due to works of righteousness that we have done. What does that mean? What does that mean? God's grace, God's kindness, God's love is not based upon the things we have done. What does that mean? Can't earn my salvation. There's not enough good works that I could do that I could look at God and say, God, now you owe me. Give me my eternal salvation. Come on, I deserve it. He says the kindness and love of our God, uh, God and our Savior towards man appeared. Where have I seen the word appeared? Chapter 3 and verse 4. Look back a page to chapter 2 and verse 11. The grace of God that brings salvation. That's remarkably similar to exactly what he says there in Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. It's appeared unto us, chapter 3. Not because we deserved it, chapter 3 and verse 5, but according to his mercy he saved us. According to his mercy. If God has been merciful to us, if God has been gracious to us, how ought we to behave towards other people? Not, chapter 3 and verse 3, hating or being hateful and hating one another, but being gracious, being kind, being loving. How does that manifest itself? It means that I'm going to be more careful about what it is that I post on social media about the president. I'm going to be more careful about how it is that I speak about people who are in authority. It means I'm going to be more submissive to the commandments of what God has given me in understanding my responsibility to the civil government. It means I'm not going to be continually looking for loopholes and the chances to exploit the system. It means I'm going to be willingly submissive to those things. That doesn't mean I'm going to relate to people in the church. Well, I'm going to maintain good works. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to be a person who is zealous for good works. But when I run across a person who is more interested in controversy and more interested in uh, foolish questions and foolish disputes and things that are really not profitable to our godliness, but just profitable for, well, unprofitable for dividing lines and making people feel like they're no less than a Christian. He says, you take a person like that and you turn your back on them after a first and second admonition. Yes, sir, Joseph. Sure. And what Joseph says is uh, it has absolute merit. And I know we're out of time, but it's true. When I have something that I see that I disagree with with regard to the government, the civil authorities, I do have the freedom of speech. 
I can write a letter to that person. I can write a email to their office. I can uh, make my voice heard. I know this past week they had the uh, March for Life, I think, right, uh, uh, downtown Austin. I know a number of people have, uh, that are Christians that participated in that. Again, it's not that they're going to storm the, uh, storm the, uh, the Capitol building. It's not that they're going to, uh, to lynch the senators or anything like that, but it's that they are trying to peacefully make their voice known. Absolutely. When you have opportunities to do that, do that. But as Joseph mentions, when you have somebody that just posts something and blasts somebody, a, a, a commissioner or a business or something like that for something that, uh, um, well, that they just disagree with, how about instead of letting everybody know exactly how you feel and how horrible that company is, why don't you write a letter to that company? Well, it won't do any good. Well, <laughs> how do you know? How do you know? You spend time and you can voice your disagreements because that's part of it, but it doesn't mean to just air all of your grievances to anybody that's going to listen. It means I maybe have a responsibility to go to that person because that's what the Bible tells me to do and to talk to them and to, as much as possible, try and help them. But we can't forget the admonition and uh, going back to Romans 12. As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Live peaceably with all men. That includes the government. Thank you all so much for, the, uh, for your participation in class. I hope this has been helpful for you, and we'll begin 2 Thess Thessalonians chapter 1 next week.